All right, our third and final segment, we want to talk obituaries, but then again, we don't have time. So I'd like to say a thing or two about Alvin Toffler, the futurist who wrote Future Shock. I'd like to say a little bit about David Bald Eagle, the man who danced with Marilyn Monroe and taught John Wayne how to shoot off a horse. I'd like to talk about Marnie Nixon, who was Hollywood's voice for many actresses you saw up on screen, like... Deborah Carr in, King, in The King and I, Natalie Wood in West Side Story, and Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady, but that'll have to wait. I'd like to talk a bit about Tim LaHaye, the evangelical leader who authored these horrible 16-volume <laughs> Left Behind series, but I'm just going to leave a go with that. But I think we do need to take maybe a whole full minute to talk about Gary Paxton. Gary Paxton later in life, got involved with, well, the Bakers, Jim and Tammy Faye. This is because he turned to Christ after, after being involved with drugs and alcohol and uh, apparently uh, became so well-liked by Tammy Faye Baker that reportedly Jim decided to make his wife jealous, and that was at least an excuse offered for why he dallied with Jessica Hahn, a church secretary. But honest to God, we don't care too much about any of that. We're commemorating the passing of Gary Paxton because he wrote two legendary songs, both novelty songs. Yes, although it doesn't seem possible, the fact is Gary Paxton wrote both the novelty hit Alley Oop and that Hollywood perennial favorite, Monster Mash. Now, Alley, now, Alley Oop was a hit for a group called the Hollywood Argyles and was based on the comic strip Caveman character. And it was Bobby Pickett who two years later, 1962, turned Monster Mash into the perennial hit as remained to this day. But doggone it, Gary Paxton wrote them both, and we're just going to have to salute him for that. This does give us a chance to go out on today's program with Monster Mash, which, frankly, is something we can't resist. Now, in the five minutes we have left, I'm going to do at least one political item. Um, William Falk, who is the editor-in-chief of The Week magazine, had the following little piece to say, which I think I should quote from. For an illustration of why Americans are so disgusted with Washington, you cannot do better than Congress's partial response to the Zika virus. Amid warnings that the mosquito-borne pathogen would inevitably reach the U.S. mainland, President Obama asked in February of this year for $1.9 billion to fund rapid response teams to limit outbreaks, improve diagnostic tests, control mosquito populations, and develop a vaccine. After months of wrangling, the Senate passed a clean, bipartisan $1.1 billion funding bill. But House Republicans rejected it and proposed their own version filled with partisan landmines. The bill called for defunding parts of Obamacare and cutting a program providing contraception to low-income women and men. Democrats balked at this, and the bill died. Now, Zika, which can cause birth defects and neurologic problems, has arrived in Miami, and Congress has adjourned for a seven-week summer vacation. See you in September. Noted Mr. Falk, irresponsibility of this kind should outrage the nation, but our stores of outrage have been largely spent. 
Members of the House and Senate turn every issue into a partisan kabuki theater, a ritual performance of ideological differences in which real-world problems are never solved. Noted Falk, when Donald Trump supporters are asked why they support someone so rude and reckless, they say Washington is broken. We need someone who's a little crazy to shake it up. Well, said Falk, even if their choice of medicine is questionable, you can't argue with that diagnosis. Good God. And while we will agree with the editor-in-chief of The Week magazine that Washington is broken, I have to also agree with them that uh, Trump is probably not going to do much to help. But I think I'll end here with two pieces that appeared in last Sunday's B. The first one was an op-ed piece by Hedrick Smith. It was in a special to the Sacramento Bee, which again shows me why I do have respect for the Bee. Hedrick Smith wrote extensively for the New York Times, but in this case he wrote for our local McClatchy paper. He noted that amid partisan furor over clashing red and white visions of America and the uproar over Donald Trump's hassling a gold star Muslim family, it's easy to miss what the two rivals have in common. A focus on inequality as the driving issue of the campaign and on the need to offer a better deal to the middle class. Said Smith, this year the captains of industry and finance have been sidelined and they know it. I'm not sure that's true about Hillary Clinton, but nevertheless, let's go with this. John Engler, New York Times business analyst, groused, everything's been upended. Engler is CEO of the Business Roundtable, the organ of America's 200 most powerful corporate CEOs. Said Mr. Engler, we're now faced with two candidates who, when it comes to the United States economy, have diametrically opposite viewpoints from us. It's a cause for great concern. Notes the piece. The grand prize this year is an aroused middle America. The rebellious legions mobilized by Bernie Sanders, savaging a system selfishly rigged by the rich, and angry blue-collar Americans betting on Trump to settle scores with business bosses whose honeymoon with globalism left Main Street in the dust. Said Smith, Hillary Clinton's millions of single moms struggling to juggle part-time jobs while demanding equal pay, or the fleet of new college grads fishing for steady work in our current economy while buckling under the weight of $1.2 trillion in student debt. In fact, said Smith, what we may be witnessing is the twilight of an era. For nearly four decades, the business establishment has captured policymakers in both parties with the laissez-faire creed, Chicago University economist Milton Friedman, who preached the imperative of an untrammeled free market and the single-minded pursuit of shareholder value as the formula for creating prosperity for America. But this year, corporate trickle-down economics are not selling so well. They're not even being marketed by either candidate. Well, I think there's truth in some of that, but we do get back to Emma Goldman, who noted that if elections mattered, they'd be made illegal. And it is curious that both Trump and Clinton have targeted Wall Street and have gone on record against trade deals that have hollowed out a newly vocal working class. Said Smith, astonishingly, both Republican and Democratic Party platforms call for tougher regulations of America's megabanks, restoring Glass-Siegel, the New Deal law that walled off the casino of Wall Street investment banking from the commercial banks the rest of us use. Anyway, you may want to read the whole piece yourself. We do note that Hedrick Smith is the author of Who Stole the American Dream and executive editor of the website ReclaimTheAmericanDream.org. All right. And for our final item, we want to, again, talk about California's water issues. This same page of the B with the op-ed piece by Hedrick Smith had another piece by Eric Siskred, 
also a special to the bee. It told a story that I somehow missed when I read Mark Reisner's Cadillac Desert. I think there were just so many landmines in that book that this one didn't stand out. But Mr. Skindred notes, quoting from Mark Reisner's book, a rather fascinating little anecdote back from about 1925. Supposedly, Los Angeles water baron William Mulholland was badgering Yosemite National Park Superintendent Horace Albright with a proposal to dam Yosemite Valley. And yes, while that project would obliterate (laughs) the natural marvels of the world, Mulholland offered to mitigate the loss with a year-long photo documentary project. As Albright related the story to Mark Reisner decades later, Mulholland saw the dam and its waters rising, staunching the goddamn waste represented by the free-flowing Merced River. Now, you may chuckle over the idea of turning Yosemite Valley into a lake, but the bad news is the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir, which supplies the Bay Area and San Francisco with its drinking water, comes from the fact that they dammed the Hetch Hetchy Valley, which was the valley just north of Yosemite, for its water. Now, luckily for all of us, Hetch Hetchy was not quite so spectacular as Yosemite Valley, its neighbor to the south, but by all accounts, it broke John Muir's heart to lose that battle with water interests and did prompt a recent effort by some to talk about how we could restore the Hetch Hetchy Valley because San Francisco and others could get by with other sources of water. Well, with people like Diane Feinstein working for water interests and just the general, <laughs> general thrust of how politics works in California, that ain't ever going to happen. Unfortunately, as Reisner pointed out in that and other, in other writings, the destruction of the Delta is highly possible. It's actually highly likely in the future with saltwater intrusion, which is why Jerry Brown and Southern California and agricultural water interests want to get two big giant straws and stick them up higher where the water is guaranteed to be good and then ship that south. We will continue to follow that story, particularly in regards to this absurd Bay Delta conservation program that purports purports to be all about restoring the ecology of the Delta. And all I can say is if you believe that, please give us write us at infortradioparallax.com and let's do some land deals. But doggone it, we are flat out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. And yes, we do talk about the same subjects a lot because, well, they're just not being talked about enough by others or not in what we would consider the right way. So, we'll see you next week. I was working in the lab late one night When my eyes beheld an eerie sight For my monster from his slab began to rise And suddenly, to my surprise He did the mash He did the monster mash The monster mash It was a graveyard smash He did the mash It caught on in a flash He did the mash He did the monster mash From my laboratory in the castle east To the master bedroom where the vampires feast The ghoul 
girls all came from their humble abode to get a jolt from my electrode. They did the mash. They did the monster mash. The monster mash. 